Well, good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? So if you haven't talked to any of the teens, they're extremely hoarse, including myself. So if my voice goes out and I crackle and it's bad, just need a little bit of extra mercy this morning. Amen. Amen. You know, the title of my lesson this morning is Deep Spiritual Friendships. How many of you guys have seen the movie Turner and Hooch? Anyone? Okay. It's a, it's a young Tom Hanks movie. He's a cop, and he basically gets assigned a police dog. And so the whole movie is their growing dynamic in their relationship. And I thought, man, this is a really great analogy for the way that we need to have deep spiritual relationships. And the whole way this, this topic kind of hit me the other day was, you know, the world is exploding right now with Game of Thrones. It's, it's everywhere. It's all the commercials, the season's back, we're on episode three, whatever. And, uh, you know, Game of Thrones is famous for its tagline, the winter is coming. Right? It's been going on for like 12 years now or something like that if you watch the show. And I was thinking about it and I went, you know, in, in Santa Clarita, we, winter is coming. That's, that's not our tagline. Like we have a different tagline. Summer is coming. And I started thinking about it because, you know, the other day it was like really warm. And, you know, the first time that Santa Clarita and you kind of walk out of your house, maybe you're taking the trash out early in the morning and kind of going and it's a short walk. You're just going to the trash can and you've got the bag and the bag is not that heavy. It's just a trash bag. And you're throwing it away and you turn around and you go back to the steps to walk back up to your apartment. And you feel that first bead of sweat start to trickle down your back. And it's like, Summer is coming. <laughs> like you sense it. You feel it. It's like, oh, no. You know, this was our uh, in and out service last year. And somewhere in there, Fernando's wearing a tank top. <laughs> it just happens. But, you know, as I thought about this, because we are in May, summer is coming. You may have felt it, sensed it already because of where we live. You know, summer is an incredible opportunity where we're going to be experiencing, you know, family vacations, barbecues, pool parties, fun events, late nights. Like summer is a time when, man, we we really build incredible memories over the summertime. It's not just, you know, freakishly hot. It's actually a lot of fun. And I started thinking about this because summer is such a time where God really gives us an opportunity to build incredible connections schools are out like the whole spirit of it is man let's let's build these memories let's grow together let's have this incredible fun you know encouragement kind of building up the the well or the tank of encouragement if you will for when times get rough but at the same time summer can also be a time of laziness isolation and spiritual compromises And so I thought, man, this is a time when we probably need to start talking about the difference maker. The difference between having an incredible summer full of all of those things or a summer full of compromise and laziness. And the difference maker is just that. It's connection. You know, God designed us for connection. He designed us to draw strength and faith and inspiration from one another. And as a church, we've got to make sure that we have the proper conviction when it comes to our deep spiritual friendships. And so if you'll turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to look at one of the most powerful prophets in the Old Testament, 
We're going to look at Elijah and a few of his relationships and how those were handled. And my first point this morning is God will bring spiritual people you need. This is a scene from one of the greatest, if not the greatest, buddy cop movie ever made, Rush Hour. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, you know, we pick up at a time in Elijah's life where he's had these incredible victories. You know, Elijah has been flying solo for a long time. There have been other kind of minor prophets or assistants or servants that he's had kind of with him at different times. But really the bulk of the heavy lifting has been just him and God. And he gets to a point where he's had this tremendous victory, defeated the odds, come out of the impossible, and yet instantly faces some persecution, as usually comes after great victory. And he's immediately struck with discouragement and depression. And so we pick up here in chapter 10 as he's run out into the desert to be with God. I'm sorry, verse 10. It says, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. You know, no matter who you are, no matter how strong a character you have, without relationships, eventually we drive ourselves out into the wilderness. Eventually, we drive ourselves out into places where we don't do well, right? We see this with Elisha. This was a guy riding high on victory, and yet he finds himself out in the desert running to God, rightly so. But what are the things that he talks about? Man, Israel has rejected you. Man, they're killed the prophets. Man, I'm the only one. I'm by myself. I'm just out here. And maybe that's where some of us are this morning. You know, maybe you're kind of riding on the coattails of some incredible victory. And we've definitely had some in the last several weeks, the last several months. But maybe in that time, as you've kind of ridden that wave, you've made some decisions. And even looking around this morning, you're kind of 
taking the survey of the land and you find yourself in a desert in your life. Maybe emotionally, maybe financially, maybe with your family. And you're, thinking, and you're feeling to yourself, man, this isn't good being in the desert. You know, Elijah made the right move. He ran to God first. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to run to God first. But it's interesting the direction that God then gives Elijah. He basically instructs him, hey, go connect with these three guys. You're going to go need to spend time with them. Appoint them. Hang out with them. Share the mission with them. And they're going to help you carry your load. And he handpicks these three guys, Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. You know, it's important for us when we find ourselves in the desert that not only do we run to God, but that we pay attention to who God is trying to put in our lives for us to connect with. You know, just like with Elijah, God has handpicked people for your life. He has handpicked the Hazales, the Jehus, and the Elishas for your growth, your inspiration, and your success spiritually. You know, even if you were just to take a few seconds, who are those people this morning? In your life. When you sit down and you think, man, who are the people? The select few, maybe, that God this has surely handpicked for such a time as I'm going through right now. Who are the people that I know, if I were to call them up right now, could talk me off the ledge? Man, God has put them there. You know, if this is your first time visiting with us, maybe it's the coworker who's been bugging you to come out to church this Sunday and got you in this seat. Maybe that's the person that God has handpicked for your life. Maybe it's the brother or the sister in your family group that's been challenging you a little bit lately. Calling you to the next level. Or maybe it's just the people that you trust to go toe-to-toe with you when you're at your worst. Those are the people that God has handpicked. Whoever they are, we've got to agree and see the wisdom in their selection by God. Right? He's brought them into our life for a purpose. And that's, I know, a lot easier said than done. Because when you think about those people, right, usually there's like the couple people that you're like completely sold on, right? You sit back and even as I ask you, man, who is it? There's that one brother, you're like, oh, man, that brother, I am so glad for the Ryan Spencer in my life. Just, man, encouraging, fun, like every time I see him, he's just lifting me up. You know, wow, I'm, I'm so grateful for the, the Roger Argotas in my life and for the Scott Derdarians in my life and the, the Tim Nassers in my life and the Mike Montanos in my life. You know, wow, like this is, man, you think of the sisters like, wow, like this sister helps me so much. Why? You know, and you start going through kind of your list and you're like, but then there's always like, I don't know about that one brother, though. You go through your family group list or you go through your Bible talk or you go through, you know, your teen ministry, your school, and you're like, there's that part of you that goes, God, really? Like, okay, you know, I, hey, I, I said I would carry my cross. I said I would deny myself. But in your heart, you're kind of like, I'm still waiting. You know, I'm still waiting to see kind of how that one's going to pan out. Right? And we can feel that where 
man, there are certain people that you'll turn to without a doubt. And others that may be equally as qualified in your life that we can kind of give the slip. Or that, man, we don't turn to them right off the bat. And maybe you've had that nagging feeling like they're there for a reason, but you've been ignoring it. Now, we've got to make sure that we're giving ourselves to God with a lot of humility and with a lot of submission. See, I had to learn something about submission once. Submission is being humble when you don't want to, not being humble when it sounds good. Because there are times when being humble sounds really good. That's not really submission. You're just doing what you're supposed to do. Submitting is being humble when you don't want to. When everything in you says otherwise. That's real submission. But the people that God has put in our life to challenge us, that stretch our faith, that stretch even the the boundaries of, man, why did God put this person here? And it makes you search it out. Sometimes those are the most important people in your life. Those are the ones that when they correct you, you need to hear that the most. Because it's going to take an extra level of humility to get there. It's going to take an extra level of faith to see beyond what your heart is maybe telling you in the moment. You know, you will not be a Christian long term if you can't learn to love correction. Like that is just a fact of life. You will not be a Christian long term. You will not thrive. You will not survive. If you can't learn to love correction. It just will not happen. You know, one of the biggest obstacles is when our hearts get to this place of when we build these relationships and we're so excited about it, but there's there are pockets of our lives that are no fly zones. Where maybe you have people where you've built these kind of little packs where it's like, okay, bro, I will not challenge you in this area, although we know it's there. If you don't challenge me in this area that we also, if we're being honest, we know is there, right? And we kind of build these buddy-buddy relationships where it's like, man, that's my favorite person to see in the fellowship because that's a safe place for me. I know that I'm never going to get challenged and it's never going to reveal anything. And this is, we can just watch the game together and it's awesome. Those are the black, those are the black holes in your relationship with God. Those are the blind spots. We want the encouragement and the camaraderie, but we don't want the depth that comes from having to deal with conflict. In Proverbs 27, in verse 5, it says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. And wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And I put this in there as a little precursor for our teen-led service endgame. You could look at the whole, you know, Captain America Civil War movie as like one mentoring relationship. There's a lot of conflict and a lot of resolution that needs to happen. But this idea that, man, wounds from a friend can be trusted. That these buddy-buddy relationships where we're not willing to step out and encourage one another to call each other higher, to have a vision for one another. God says that is a fake relationship. That, that's not even real. That, that's an enemy. That person is an enemy to you. And we don't want 
fake relationships where we're surrounded by yes people. That doesn't lead to growth. That doesn't lead to change. That doesn't lead to the repentance. Man, that brings times of refreshing that we all need, that we all look forward to. True friendship means there's going to be conflict. It just is. You think of your best friends. Those are oftentimes the friends that you've had like the biggest bumps with. It's just a fact of life. It just happens. You know, in the world, conflict can create the, we get scared because we remember maybe before you were a Christian where conflict created rifts and it broke bonds and it created these divisions between us. But man, in the kingdom, conflict creates bonds. When you have to work through feelings together, when you have to work through hurts, when you have to work through misunderstandings and disagreements, man, there is an incredible bond that gets built from being in the trenches, from the vulnerability that it takes to work through those things together. And even as we look out, man, there is so much conflict that's happened in this room. But the bonds that it's created are so much more worth it are so much more valuable. You know, when I was in the, the campus ministry, I lived in a Christian household, which I think everyone needs to do at some point if you have the option. And if you're, if you're married right now, you're, you're living in a Christian household. So, you, you, you know, there's no shortage of conflict there. But living in a Christian household, you know, I, I remember telling a brother one time that if, you're, if you can live with five dudes and you can navigate that and the conflicts therein, you can be married. That's... Equivalent-ish. I had to live in three households and have 20 roommates. So that's, you know, I was prepared in that way. But I remember, like, all of my discipling came from my household. Like, all of my repentance, all of the talks, you know, when I was messing up in my faith, when I was messing up in decisions that I was making in my life, in my classes, at my work, when I was getting off the rails with my pride when I wasn't being humble. Like, I could trust going home to my roommates. They were going to sniff it out, and we were going to talk about it. We called them emergency household meetings. Where it was like late at night, we would all powwow, and, you know, it would start with a lot of vulnerability on everyone's part because you didn't know, like, kind of who it was that night, and then it would just it would get in there. And, man, we sharpened each other. There were, there were knife fights, sword fights, spiritually, that happened in our house. And I remember one, like, two-week stretch of period where my best friend, Greg, had been just going after me. Like, I, I had been, like, in my head, like, really just struggling with laziness this semester. I had been dragging my feet in my classes. I had been procrastinating work in my classes, procrastinating at my job, dragging my feet in the ministry, doing the bare minimum when it came to being engaged in my Bible talk, like all of these things. And I remember Greg would just not let it go. He was on my case every single day. And I remember sitting down with him at one point and and just having it out. And I remember just, bro, why are you on my case? Can you just give me a day off? Can you just like let me be for one day? And I remember he sat me down and he said, bro, no. I'm not gonna. I, and, and I remember he said, I am going to be on your neck every single day. And I'm like, that's a weird analogy. I don't know why you would say that. But he said, because you are not living up to the man of God that I know and I expect you to be. 
And Greg wasn't, you know, we weren't in a, a mentoring relationship. Like he wasn't my, my trainer in the ministry. He wasn't trying to raise me up to be a minister or anything. But I remember being taken aback that one of my peers, one of my close friends, had an expectation of who I was as a man of God. Like he had a vision for what he wanted me to become. And when I wasn't living up to that, that he was going to challenge me about it. That he was going to sit me down and he was going to show me scripture and he was going to pray with me and he was going to keep me accountable and he was going to be there every step of the way until I lived up to the potential that he knew God saw in me. And, and that really changed me forever. I felt like that changed the way I looked at people. That changed the outlook I had when I looked at the people in my ministry, when I looked at the church, when I looked at my friends. I felt, man, I, I owe it to my friends. I owe it to the people that I'm close to, to expect great things of them spiritually. And not just to have an expectation, but to hold myself responsible to helping them get there. When it came to our friendship. Guys, we have got to expect great things from each other. We've got to have a great vision, not just for our church and what we do collectively, but for one another. Not for the the people that are younger than you, for the people that are older than you. You know, I expect all of the married men in our church that the next 10 years are going to be better than the last 10 years. I expect the glory days not to be behind us. I expect them to be in front of us. And I expect to be blown away and to continue to see the older men in the church pave the way for me. And pave the way for the teens and pave the way for the campus. You know, I expect the campus brothers. I expect great things. I expect the ministry staff great things. I expect our teens to grow up and to be incredible Men and women of character. Like, and I have to. I owe it to them. Just as we owe it to each other in that way. God has put these people in your life for a reason. Let's make sure that we're seeing the value in that. And number two, let's make sure that we are prioritizing our spiritual connections. The shawarma scene. It's, it explains itself. In 2 Kings chapter 2, in verse 1, right, we see Elijah now having gone and gotten this incredible advice from God, this incredible time of strengthening from God in the mountain. And he goes out and he starts connecting with these guys and building these relationships. And they start going off and conquering kingdoms and dealing with sin and having all these great victories. And then it comes time for Elijah to pass on the mantle. And so we see Elijah here. With his mentee, Elisha, not to be confused. And in 2 Kings chapter 2, in verse 1, it says, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied. So be quiet. I don't want to hear that. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. 
And again, he replied, as surely as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. The prophets asked him at Jericho, do you know he's going to be taken away? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Elijah comes to him a third time. Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. As surely as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water. And the water divided to the right and the left. And the two of them walked and crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed... Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will be not. And as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. You know, I love the story of Elijah and Elisha. Because in it, as you read first and second Kings, you you don't really get to see a lot of the interactions between Elijah and Elisha. Like, you don't see what their friendship was like. You don't see, like, them doing, like, super cool things together, you know, like the Justice League and, like, having these moments and eating shawarma afterwards. And, you know, you don't see them at, like, Carousel Ranch working hard and, like, you know, the blood and sweat that kind of goes in. You don't see those moments. All you see is the end result. All you see is Elisha knowing that his friend is going to go. And three times being offered, like, hey, I've got to go run this errand, like, stay here. And if you think Elijah was a prophet, that means Elisha, there was stuff that they needed to do. Certainly there were things in the ministry that needed to be done. People that needed to be studied the Bible with, like miracles that needed to happen, you know. There was stuff going on. And yet Elisha says, on oath, as surely as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. And I charted out their route, right? He says, you know, I've got to go to Bethel. I've got to go to Jericho. I've got to go to the Jordan. Those were all out of the way of where they had been going. And when I say out of the way, I mean like 50 miles on foot out of the way. And Elisha goes, no, like I'm going with you. What we know of their friendship was that Elisha had to be separated by God from him. That there was nothing else that was going to do it. That he walked an extra 50 miles to get an extra day, an extra couple hours, maybe an extra couple minutes. Like even after he asked him, what can I do for you? It says, as they were walking and talking, when the horsemen came down. Like in Elisha's mind, there was no greater priority than being with Elijah. That whatever was going on in the ministry, whatever was going on back home, like all of that could wait. Because of their friendship. And it makes me think, you know, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, like when you see the first disciples after Jesus goes up into heaven, in verse 46, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day. So they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor 
of all the people. Like there was an Elisha spirit in the first century disciples. Like they could not get enough. They genuinely just loved being together. There was no other place they would rather be. And I feel like I can confidently say, man, this is a great strength of ours when it comes to being at events. Like if you've ever tried to get us out of anywhere at one time, that's like a two hour long endeavor. You know what I'm saying? Like even leaving church today, like we're not going to be out of here till like one. Like the setup crew is going to be done and people are still going to be standing out front when the doors are locked and hanging out. And like this is a genuine strength of our fellowship is that we just love being together. Man, and it is so evident and it is so inspiring to our community when they come in and this is the kind of environment they want to see. When it's not like, you know, church is over and it's just woof, like everyone's gone. Like, okay, quick, let's go see a movie. Or, woof, woof, I got to go home. I've got to, you know, shine my shoes. Like, woof, like, no, it's like, what do we got going on? Oh, dang, my kids in kids kingdom. It's 45 minutes later. I need to go get them now. You know, it's like we, are, we get so caught up with each other. Like, it's incredible. Guys, I don't know if, if we even fully grasp that. Or understand that, or, or that it sits on the front of our minds, how good we have it. Like, if you were to go and visit another church, like, there's a huge population of them where it is. Like, on Sunday, the lesson ends, and, and by the last song, people are going halfway through. Or, you know, I might say, okay, my final point is, and like, the back rows just leave. Like, that's. And that tells you something about the culture. That, man, they can't wait to get out. Not that they can't wait to get in. We've got to be grateful. We've got to look out across our fellowship and, you know, the memories, the connections. It is. It's like you, service is over and you look out and you go, okay, there's 30 people I need to talk to before I leave. Oh, those ministry appointments? No, no, no. I just want to say hi to the next 40 people over here. Like, it's just, I'm connecting with them. Because we have so much that we've shared together. So many things that we've wrestled through together. That we have this connection. And in that, I want to offer a challenge. I want to offer a correction, if you will. Because we're deep spiritual friends. And we love correction. Amen? Right? When you think about our Sunday services or midweek or Carousel Ranch or men's retreat or any of these big things, it's true. Like getting us out of anywhere is incredibly difficult. And I'm not saying leave faster. That's not the challenge. But how do we do during the week when we're on our own? Because it's one thing to come to an event that you know, like, I'm committed to this already. Like, this is a part of my routine. This is a part of my life. This is my expectation of myself as I'm going. I'm being with the body. But when you're on your own, what do your connections look like? During the week, do we strive for the same level of hospitality? Are we having people into our home for dinner? Do we call each other, text each other? Get coffee together, play sports, to go to the gym together. Like, are there things that we do together when it's not an event to stay connected? You know, some of us have it easier than others because maybe you all go to school together. That's easy. You see each other every day. 
But maybe when you go to work and it's not easy to see people, it's not easy to connect because you're working nine to five. Then how are we fighting to connect with each other then? And I want to challenge us to prioritize our connections, to prioritize our spiritual friendships. Even if it's just a text message, when was the last time you got a really encouraging text message from someone that just said, hey, bro, hope every, hey, sis, I hope everything is going well. I was thinking about you. I was praying for you today. Man, I would love to connect with you on the phone, you know, sometime this week. It's like, that makes you feel good. That makes you feel special. You, wow, this person was thinking about me. Like, even if that's it, man, that's a connection. Even a five-minute phone call. Hey, man, I just want to tell you about my day. How's your day going? Or, hey, I'm about to get off work. you want to grab a cup of coffee on my way home? Or, hey, are you guys free on Thursday night? Like, we would love to have you over for dinner. Or, like, let's make sure that we are not different outside of events. That what we have to be so grateful for, what we have is such an incredible blessing in our connections with each other. The culture of our fellowship is the same when we're on our own. That you are just as good at connecting you yourself as when we're all together. And let's make that our mission. You guys with me? And so for this summer, as we look forward into the coming months, as we look forward into these times, let's make sure that we are considering and grabbing onto the people that God has brought into your life that you need. With humility, with submission, let's bring them in. Let's never let go of them. And number two, Let's make sure that we are prioritizing our spiritual friendships, that those are worth more to us than gold, that we have that Elisha-like spirit. No, as surely as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. Amen? Amen. That is the lesson for today.